Hey folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris Pruitt, who heads publishing for Oculus VR. Now, in this podcast, we're going to talk about Oculus Quest 2, how the launch went, how many units they've been selling. We're going to talk about the reception from the consumers. We're going to take a, a walk down the memory lane, starting from 2014, when, when Facebook first came out with Oculus. But most importantly for the listeners of this podcast, we're of course going to talk about the Oculus App Store. We're going to talk about what kind of content succeed, what doesn't, and what does success look like. Like We're going to talk direct numbers, how much the top games are making. We're also going to talk about the future of immersive technologies, VR, AR, and so forth. So overall, I think this is a very interesting podcast and, and for many developers, not all, but for many developers... I think VR could be a good platform to, to launch their game. But you'll be the judge of that, and there's plenty of information on this podcast on what kind of a game, if you would be making a VR game, what kind of a game you perhaps should be making. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Pruitt. Welcome, Chris, to the podcast. All right. How's it going? It's going good. So let's talk about you. You run publishing at Oculus VR, and you're also a co-founder at Robot Invader. So you're basically a game maker turned a Facebook director. Am I correct? That's right. Uh, let's see. My official title at Facebook is Director of Content Ecosystem, mm-hmm. which is a kind of Silicon Valley way to say that I run sort of third-party publishing and developer support for uh, for Oculus, for our VR, our VR platform. Uh, I also founded a game company uh, called Robot Invader. Um, I worked on video games as an engineer uh, earlier in my career, and I worked on Android at Google for a number of years as well in the early early days of, of uh, Android. Nice. Great name for a company. I do have to say, Robot Invader. That's Thanks. an awesome name. So uh, so you've been, you've been at the Oculus for, for quite some while now, right? Yes, it will be seven years this fall. That's amazing. Since since basically the beginning. So I can ask you anything about Oculus and you've been there actually. And anything about <laughs> VR. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I've I've been around the block. Um, I think I can probably can probably answer most of your questions. Awesome. Awesome. We'll have plenty of questions today. And if, let's start off with the uh, the most the most um, the most important one, and that is Oculus Quest 2. So it launched in 2020, not so far along ago, and there was a lot of positive hype around it. Um, for somebody who's not familiar with the uh, with the product line, what's so special about Oculus Two? Sure. So um, you know we have been building we have we built a, a number of Oculus uh, branded VR devices over the last well since I've been there since the last seven years. We have devices that plugged into your PC and give you sort of a, a PC based experience. We had devices we worked on with Samsung that you sort of slotted your phone into, um, and all of those sort of previous devices helped us understand the um, where, you know, how VR as a product needed to change before it was actually gonna be able to access the mainstream. Um, and the first device that sort of hit all of the sort of requirements for a mainstream device was called Oculus Quest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that came out in, um, uh, in 2019. And, and what's important to understand about the Quest is that it's a standalone device. It doesn't require a phone. It doesn't require a computer. It's entirely wireless. So you, you, you put this device in your head, there's nothing connected to it. You pick up the controllers in your hands um, and you're in a 
VR environment and you can walk around that environment, like, like physically walk around, you can like, you know, duck or, or yeah. turn your body around and, you know, we will track your motion and we'll track the positions of your hands. So you are dramatically immersed in, in the world. Uh, and also, you know, like all VR devices, we're basically giving you what's called a stereoscopic image, right? So you've got two lenses in front of your eyes and there's, there's a screen that is presenting a, you know, a left and right, um, picture of the, of the 3D world you're in, and that allows you to do what's called stereo fusion, which means you see the world in 3D. And combined with the fact that, you know, every little motion that you make is represented in VR, you are very immediately thrust into a very convincing world. Um, so the, the Quest did very well. In fact, it did so well that it was, we were perpetually out of stock for about a year uh, that, we, that we, we sold the Quest. And then we announced Quest 2 and shipped that in October of last year. Um, and it is a upgraded version of Quest that we actually sell for a little bit less money. Um, and it is sort of, it's sort of better in every way. Uh, and it's been doing extremely well since we launched it in October. So is that primary in the U.S.? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here out in, in Finland. It's like the, uh, <laughs> the furthest point of Europe. Like this is like the Montana of Europe. So, so we don't have, we don't have Quest here. No offense to Montana. But, uh, <laughs> but um, what's the adaptation rate looking like? Uh, overall, and um, especially around the world for, for Oculus 2? The, the United States is clearly like our, a very huge market. Um, we're also like doing very well in the UK um, and a couple other parts of Europe. We launched in Japan for the first time uh, in, in retail in Japan in, in 2020 with Quest 2. So it's actually available worldwide, but the, um, and I think if you go online, you can buy it from from just about anywhere. Uh, but we're we're particularly in retail and particularly like successful in those markets primarily. How, how I have to ask this: How much do you think lockdowns played a role in the sales of of, uh, of Quest Two? Uh, I mean, I assume that when people are kind of locked inside their four doors, it would be nice to get somewhere and and be in some kind of other immersive world rather than you know watching Netflix on your on your phone. Yeah, I mean, I think the lockdown has been um, beneficial to nearly all entertainment media. Like I expect that, you know, Netflix's watch time has gone up through the roof for this last year. Um, but it, it presented us with um, a sort of unique opportunity, I think, to give our customers access to something they can't get in the real world, which is like leaving their house, right? Like yeah. we, we felt that, uh, it, you know, it's great. More people are using VR, people are using it for longer. Like the, the uh, of course, like when you have more free time, you have time to play video games or do other things that are, are fun entertainment. But we actually thought it was a, um, you know, we were uniquely positioned to sort of help people get through the lockdown by providing, you know, basically a, an escape to another world. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's something that we, we can do that, you know, most other entertainment platforms can't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say, I haven't been using VR for a long time. I, I think I tried the first Oculus version. I think I have still the, uh, the, the photos of it. That was way, way back. I think that was seven years ago or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely very immersive. And, and I remember when the Oculus, um, I think it was the Quest or the previous version came out. A lot of studios had those, but it did have a lot of wires. So it's, um, I've, I've been watching the videos of Quest, Quest 2. It feels like it has taken so many steps forward that it's now quite accessible, both in terms of price and the, uh, the usability of it. Yeah, that's absolutely our goal. The, um, the, you know, one of the things we learned with our previous devices, uh, you, you referenced the Rift, I think, which, is, which had a lot of, yes. you, know, you plug it yeah, into yeah. your computer yeah. and you had to plug in some trackers to the, yes. to the computer and you had to set the trackers up on your desk and then you had to sort of calibrate them. And 
like once it all worked, it was really, really high fidelity experience. Um, and we improved on it. We reshipped a, you know, a device called the Rift S, which got rid of the trackers and put the, put the tracking in the headset. You know, regular people, not, you know, us hardcore VR folks are like, cool, I, I set up my awesome rig and now it's great. But regular people just want to jump in and have a good time. And one of the things we worked really hard on with the Quest product is to make that possible. So you literally put it on and you're inside. Um, the first time you need to do a setup, you get asked to draw like a, a safety, we call it a guardian. Um, it's just a safety boundary where you can step. And that takes about 10 seconds and there's no other setup to do. You're just, you're just in. Um, and that sort of time to fun was really important thing that we tried to optimize for, for the quest line. That's, that's awesome. Um, I have to ask another one is like, how do you position Oculus, especially Oculus Quest as an entertainment product with, um, in comparison, like you talked about Netflix or all, all kind of streaming services, that's naturally one. And when we look overall in the games, like we're competing against streaming services, we're competing against the news, we're competing against Instagram for players time. Uh, and an Oculus being such an overwhelming experience, like you can't be watching Netflix and being in a, in a different world. So how do you position that uh, against other competitors for consumers time? Well, you can actually watch Netflix in VR and it's pretty cool. You get All to right. watch Netflix on a big virtual theater and it's very, it's, you know, it's private, right? Like, yeah. like I watch uh, lots of horror movies that are not, uh, you know, appropriate for my children. So there's, there's, there's some benefits even to just, you know, watching a screen in VR. Uh, but I think the, you know, the primary um, draw of, of Quest today has been video games. So if you, if you, you know, you look at our marketing or you ask customers, you know, what's VR for, they're most likely to say, oh, it's video games. And it makes a lot of sense. You can step into a video game that you've up until now only been able to see on a screen. And that the impact of doing that is actually like, it's very difficult to describe in words, but if you've tried it, uh, it's very impactful. Like it feels like you're inside a video game. Um, and it turns out that, you know, building for VR requires knowledge of like high-end real-time uh, rendering. And it turns out the best companies in the world to do that are video game companies. So we've seen a, a really nice overlap with both like customer interest, what our device can do and what developers are interested in building. And that, that's been like the, the sort of core focus of the Quest device. Mm. But we're also starting to see that because we have sort of unique characteristics that say game consoles or TVs don't have, um, we're starting to see that branch off into other interesting genres of content. Um, for example, fitness is doing really well on our platform. Hmm. Um, and like, I, I, I think fitness was something that we didn't uh, anticipate as being an obvious fit for VR, but it turns out when we know where your head and your hands are, you know, you can actually create a sort of fitness experience where you're moving a lot and you're doing like a, a workout um, and we can, we can tell how well you're doing or, or a software developer can tell how we're doing very accurately. Because for example, if you're doing a boxing simulation, mm -hmm. I know if you've, if you've punched properly at the right time or not, um, it's not hitting a button. You're actually doing a punch. Yeah. yeah. So we have, we have developers, uh, there's a book called Supernatural, which is only available in the United States, uh, as well as uh, FitXR and, and several others that are building um, not video games, but really uh, fitness applications that, that, that you sort of play. Um, and because you can move your whole body in VR mm -hmm. and you can sort of control the software by moving your body, it's actually a real workout. Um, is, it, is it more like towards uh, like the, uh, what was the, those Nintendo Wii U type of games? Or is it more towards like a Peloton type of experience? 
I would say that uh, Supernatural is much closer to what you would get with like a Peloton in that mm-hmm. they are they're giving you a an exercise routine, which is is itself something like a video game. In fact, it's very similar to Beat Saber, which is a music game we have on our platform. Okay. You're you you got you know some bats in your hand and you're you're cutting things in the air in time with music, but they also have a, a trainer that shows up and gives you a lesson. They change every week. The music is licensed and changes all the time. You know, it 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 is a a, a regimen that gives you like here, here's when your next schedule is and here's how many calories you burned and here's what your next thing is going to be. And it automatically adapts to your skill level. So if you're, you know, to make sure that you're always getting a good workout. Um, right. So it, it, it doesn't, it's not a toy in the way that like, I really love my, my, um, my Wii device. I have two yeah. of them connected to my TV still, but, uh, but you know, it's not, it's not a gimmick. We actually have um, extremely accurate, like sub millimeter, control over where your hands and your head are in space. Um, and so we don't need to do sort of the hacks that we've seen with motion games in the past, which are like, well, do this motion. And we're like, as long as you get sort of close to it, we'll, <laughs> we'll sort of accept that you've done the motion. No, we can actually tell if you punched the guy at the right time or you hit the beat at the right time or you, know, you did the motion correctly. Um, and that means we can build an actual sort of fitness workout in VR. That's really cool. I need to test that one. Uh, so, so um, let's let's take a little bit of a memory lane, like back when you pretty much started, like 2014. Um, so that's when Facebook acquired Oculus, and I remember back in 2016, there was a lot of studios that basically jumped on the bandwagon of making VR games. I remember because I was even thinking about starting a VR studio. That was like I was living in San Francisco, and I was the uh, the you know that was a talk on the street. We should start a VR studio. Like that's the next big thing. Let's ride the wave. Uh, but it seemed like there wasn't enough consumers on the platform to sustain really that ecosystem. We saw a lot of numbers coming in from different uh, different publishers, different developers who are working with different VR partners. And they were quite low compared to mobile gaming, of course, uh, and really low, like so low that it couldn't sustain those studios. You know, how come, how come that didn't work out? And how are things today? And how is the ecosystem, like you're in charge of the ecosystem of developers, like how is that looking and what are you guys focusing now so that the 2016 doesn't repeat? I certainly lived through that era as well. Uh, the, it, was, it was simultaneously an era of extreme innovation and, and, and massive excitement, as well as, as you, as you point out, it was, it was just very early, I think, in the, in the cycle. Um, you know, we saw very competent headsets from uh, a number of companies, including Oculus, mm-hmm. uh, and all of them managed to register with customers. And I think none of them really uh, turned into long-term viable businesses. And at the time, you know, we were very focused on ensuring that the hardware was going to be really high quality and the experiences were going to be really high quality. So, like the technology to build VR is like very complicated. Uh, we are we are attempting to trick your brain into believing that you're in a virtual world, and to accomplish that, we need to hit like very high fidelity in terms of not just graphics quality, but also like, like we call motion, motion to photon latency. It's like when you move your head, how long does it take before a photon that describes that motion hits your eyeball? Um, and, and in the early phase, like that was really the focus is like, can we make this work? Can we make it work reliably? Can we make it work across a, uh, a large number of, of computers? Um, and the result was like, yes, yes, we can. But as long as this device is tied to a PC, the total size of the market is going to be pretty limited. Like you can, you can look at, uh, we actually had some interesting data a couple of years ago that I saw, which was like the percentage of console game owners 
So percentage of PC gamers that own a console is like 80% or something. Like there's a massive overlap. But the percentage of console game owners that own a gaming PC is like 10%. Like the, the total size of the PC gaming market is relatively small mm-hmm. compared to the mobile or console or sort of the other markets you're referencing. So when we got to, to Quest, um, you know, making sure it could be untethered from the PC was the first priority. Because that is the... Uh, a way for us to get to mainstream. First of all, it lowers the overall cost of entry to the device, right? If you have to buy not just the headset, but also like a gaming rig, if you don't already have one, like all of a sudden the cost of entry to get to this device is very high, right? So ensuring that we could um, create a product that would be, you know, you walk into your uh, a Target or a Best Buy or in your Japan, a big camera or uh, Saturn and whatever, wherever it is, and you you can buy this thing off the shelf, and it you know Quest Two is two hundred ninety nine dollars. Like it's a it's a uh, very easy to purchase standalone device. That was like the core principle behind the development of the soft of the of the device. And then from there, we um, we completely rethought our strategy on how we operate the ecosystem. Um, and that's that's kind of my job these days is ensuring that our ecosystem is profitable for developers. Um, and what we did was we decided that we were going to go um, focus very heavily on quality. Um, and what that means is we're going to focus on content that can stand on its own in terms of customer expectation on any platform. Like if you, if you, you know, found something in our store and you purchased it and it, you know, it should live up to your expectations, even if your expectations were set by some other platform that has a much larger user base or that has large, much larger investment. That meant that we had to start curating our store. Um, and, and previously we'd been, you know, fairly hands-off on like what, what we, you know, if you, you shipped us something and it met technical requirements, we would, we would put it on the platform. And a lot of that early work was people getting excited about VR and sort of experimenting and making like a, a really interesting 15 minute Unity demo. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's cool if you're part of the VR hacker space but if you're a regular customer who just bought this device because you want to play video games and you you download this thing that's only 15 minutes long, you're like, what was that? Yeah. And maybe it, maybe it was cool, but you expected to play a video game, right? <laughs> um, so so we we put our focus on on managing the store for quality, so that when the customer comes into our store, whatever they choose to buy is going to be something that they can they can trust will be you know well made. It might it may or may not be their taste, but it won't be poorly made. It won't be small, like it will have value for their for their money, uh, and that means we are uh, looking at titles that have length and depth and uh, you know content production quality that you would expect on other platforms. So um, those those are interesting, really interesting points. I mean, one of the things that you raised up, and I kind of like forgot about it, is like back in the days when Oculus first launched, a lot of PCs, I remember they am having an ad that this is a VR ready PC. Like right. it's powerful <laughs> enough. Like this $3,000 right. rig is powerful enough to run VR. Like that's a very small market uh, that, that actually gets those, especially those players are playing, you know, the League of Legends of the world and they have plenty of games right. to choose from. Uh, but you mentioned something very interesting. So focusing on the quality of the mm-hmm. store, and and that kind of leads to to come a couple of questions that I have is like what like I haven't looked at the Oculus Store in years. Does it have mainly like paid titles? Do you have any any free to play? Like what are you looking at? 
And how do developers know what are the type of games you're looking at so that they're not making those 15-minute demos? Like, how do they get that feedback and how do you curate yeah. for the majority of the content is uh, paid. The It's not free-to-play. We do support free-to-play, and we have a couple of titles that have experimented with it. Um, we also support, like, DLC and other types of sort of recurring um, recurring revenue systems on top of a paid purchase. We also support subscriptions, which we just rolled out earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the content is, is what we would call a premium, um, premium app, whether it's a game or, or something else. Uh, it, I would say the sort of price quality comparison is very analog to what you'd find on a Nintendo Switch or what you'd find on any other uh, sort of video game focused platform. So you're looking at titles that are probably between $10 and $60 um, and they are, you know, sort of that console level of, of production quality. Uh, as for feedback, we have a couple of different mechanisms for that. We work with a lot of developers have an idea for something and come to us with a proposal and we do an assessment about whether or not it's a fit for our platform uh, and whether or not we think that they can execute at the right level of fidelity. Um, and then we kind of say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And the I like to do that as early in the process as possible because the worst scenario is when a developer has made like a large investment against something and then we, we aren't very interested in it or we don't think it's a fit. Um, what we've done this year to try to accelerate ability for developers to experiment without actually um, sort of devaluing the content that's in our store is we've created a system called App Lab, which is a a basically non-curated distribution channel. Developer can submit anything that they like uh, as long as it falls within our content policy and uh, sort of technical requirements, we we will publish it. But we don't promote that content. It doesn't appear in our store. it's, it's not something the user will accidentally run across just by using our device. It's up to the developer to promote it themselves. Um, and what we've seen is as a, uh, as a way for developers to experiment, that's allowed devs who, you know, maybe they aren't ready to bring something to actual market, or maybe they've got a cool idea, but they only have their first level implemented and they want to get like feedback from their, their customer base. They can do that and they can do it very quickly and they can iterate on their concept. And also, Kind of shows us where the heat is. Like we have certain titles that have been um, very successful already on App Lab that we look at and we're like, man, maybe we should just put that in front of all of our customers uh, and and think about bringing them into the to the store. So but generally speaking, you know, we're looking for things that have uh, high production quality, like longevity, value for a price, um, and that you know, a customer whose value proposition is calibrated by game consoles would not would purchase and feel like they got great value for their money. Hmm. I understand. So a lot of people who are listening to this, and I mean, most of our audience is very much, very much free to play leaning. So Mm -hmm. they would, of course, they're currently arguing in their head is like, you're doing the wrong strategy because you need to be doing free to play to drive engagement. That's the only way you're doing the mistakes. Like what would be your kind of take on that? Like how come not free to play, but paid and high quality instead? Yeah, well, I mean, I spent you know I spent many years building free to play games myself. Uh, my company, uh, Robot Invader, we built Wind Up Night, which was uh, one of the early three uh, D running platformer games. We shipped in two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. as a free to play title. I mean, ten million people played that game. We yeah. we uh, uh, we had a great time learning, and I learned a ton about it. So uh, I totally understand the thought process that your that your your listeners may be going through. Uh, but I also think that if you're thinking about like mobile style free-to-play, the loop that you use on mobile to make a 
platform, like a, a, a product grow is like intrinsically requires a huge user base. Like for example, like, like the, the, the common pattern is you ship something to a, a phone store. You can't really rely on the phone store to like surface it to your customers. You're going to have to go out and find the customers yourself. Mm -hmm. So you're going to do user acquisition or you're going to do, you know, you have some IP attached to your software or you have a community already built in or something, but you've got to do the work to get your customers in there. And then you get them in there and you have like 1% or half percent of people who are actually going to convert. Um, and those folks are going to convert at a level that is hopefully strong enough to not only cover the cost of development, but also to cover the ongoing cost of your user acquisition. And as long as you can keep your, you know, your LTV higher than your CPI, like uh, you're okay, you're good. You're generating revenue and you're growing your user base and you have, you have a machine that you can sort of yeah. pump money into and get money back out of. That entire model is super cool as long as you are like on a phone where you have a billion people in the world. If you're on a device that has, you know, millions of people on the device instead of, instead of a billion people, then I think that entire model sort of falls apart pretty quickly because you can't rely on 1% of a much smaller user base to subsidize the, the rest of the work. Um, there, there have been successful free-to-play applications in VR. In fact, we have them on Quest today. So it's not impossible, but I think it's definitely the hard road yeah. um, compared, to, compared to what you do on mobile. A better way to think about free-to-play, I think, for VR is to look how free-to-play works on PC instead of the mobile link. Where if you look at like your League of Legends or you look at uh, I don't know, World of Tanks or um, you have titles where the, the main model is a content stream, right? Like you, these, are, these are applications that are updating all the time. They're adding new content all the time. Um, they are overwhelmingly multiplayer competitive titles. And when you make a purchase, you're not purchasing an advantage, but you're locking in something that maybe other players only have access to sometimes, or maybe you're purchasing something that is purely cosmetic, um, or you're you're doing something that is a convenience to you, but doesn't actually give you a competitive advantage in the game. No, except and, in World of Tanks. Except maybe in World of Tanks, right? <laughs> it's not. I mean, the, the model the model varies across the products, but if you look at those, like the conversion rates for those types of applications and the the price of the IAP items even is completely different than mobile, mm -hmm. and you have a you have a much higher attach rate of folks that are converting, um, and you can monetize them much more effectively even if your overall user base is much smaller. Mm -hmm. um, what I would say is the the approach we've taken is like I don't want to reproduce the stores that we have available to us on mobile. As a developer, I hated shipping into those platforms. Um, I want our store platform to actually do meaningful user acquisition for you. Like, why should you have to pay for it? <laughs> you should come to our platform and we should connect you with our users that are interested in your, in your content. And our ability to do that is why the platform can be profitable. So even if you make, even if your LTV is essentially $20 because that's what you charge for the application, it's a premium app. If the customer has come in with an expectation of quality and we can do a good job of connecting that customer to your application, um, then, you'll make that $20 per user. And mm -hmm. as long as the user count is high enough, you're going to be, you're going to be profitable. Um, and that's, that's, like, that's the model that is most effective today. As we scale, I would expect to see more free-to-play stuff um, because the, the model will become more viable. But given the sort of overall reach of the, of the platform today, and even the reach of like console platforms that are larger than VR, I think it's a, it's a much more difficult approach. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with you on, on this pretty... Pretty much hundred percent. Like 
Currently, it's almost easier to have a sustainable business with a paid product on uh, the type of platform like Oculus. But I would also agree that in the future, just like with Switch, just like with, with other platforms, there will be more and more free-to-play titles, but they would follow the, uh, the PC free-to-play title route because of, as you said, the core loops and the engagement loops, most importantly, are very different. Um, they, they, they're not reliant on 12 sessions a day. They are fine with uh, one session a day. Uh, one little bit longer one, and that's what they, you know, really enable you to kind of take that one hour in the evening or maybe two hours to to really kind of immerse yourself into that, and um, and that through that they kind of monetize quite quite heavily because it becomes sort of a hobby or something that people do for years and in, in those type of games like World of Tanks right. and all of those that I I do play. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our our session times look a lot more like a console than they look like a phone. You know, you don't put your VR headset on for five minutes, 20 times a day. Yeah. You put it on for an hour and a half, you know, once a day. And in that session, uh, you have an incredibly intense, incredibly high quality experience and then take it off and you're done. Mm -hmm. So your, 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 whole, your whole sort of monetization loop based on engagement is not gonna map um, directly to the uh, sort of the mobile loops that you might be familiar with. I, I will say, um, this is why curation has been really important to us. Like the customer has to believe that what they're going to buy is going to be high quality mm -hmm. because they're going to spend the money up front. Right. Um, and we have to, like, if we lie to them and we say like, believe us, it's going to be great. And they buy something and it's not, they aren't going to come back. Yeah. Right. Like we, we will, we will churn the customer. And so, um, it's been really important to me to make sure that when we put something in front of the customer, it's good. And it's, it's something that when they, you know, they spend twenty or, or thirty or forty dollars on, like even if it isn't exactly what they expected it to be, like maybe it's, you know, they thought it was one thing and they got another, they might say, oh, it wasn't what I expected, but they won't say this is junk. Yeah. Right. Like, like, like they understand where the value and the the quality is. Um, and it actually, you know, this we didn't talk about it yet, but the strategy has been pretty successful. Uh, we have generated significantly more revenue with the Quest a platform that any of our previous platforms have generated in their lifetime. And then um, what, kind of what kind of a paybacks like the top developers are looking at? Like, let's say the, uh, the top 25 percentiles, like what kind of a business can I build with an Oculus Quest 2 game? The, let's see, I'm gonna reference my notes, make sure I got it all right here. Um, about, so we have, you know, a few hundred titles on the mm -hmm. platform today. About one in three of those has made a million dollars or more in revenue. Top uh, titles are making over $10 million. And let me pull up my, my list here. So make sure I get it proper. Um, so we have, uh, 11 titles that are, mm -hmm. have made $2 million in revenue. Uh, there's 13 titles with 3 million or more, 10 titles with 5 million or more, six titles with 10 million or more, nice. uh, onward, which is a developer who we just acquired last month. Uh, is a multiplayer competitive military shooter. Uh, it's one of those titles that is over $10 million in revenue on Quest alone. And that's, that's just the Quest platform, not any other sort of VR platforms they made, maybe shipping to. And um, this is without user acquisition cost. And is this, so what is your revenue, like not revenue share, what is the, uh, the publisher fee? Is it typical 30% on that? And We don't like talk about the publisher fee publicly, mm -hmm. but it is like, I think, very unsurprising. If you yeah. know, if you get in and you look at our developer agreement where we talk about it, it's it's under NDA. But like, it's not. Um, we're not an outlier. 
Like, yeah. I think that uh, developers who look at our platform would find it very reasonable. Got uh, it. But what the numbers I'm quoting you are, are gross, right? This is the amount of money that folks have, have you know, spent on these titles in VR. Got it. Uh, but they represent real, real developer businesses for titles that, you know, cost millions of dollars to make. Like, the, the, the size of the investment uh, is going up quite quickly because the size of the return is very clearly there. And and then the uh, because the uh, the adaptation is increasing, and as more more consumers are buying this, the the uh, the basically the revenue keeps coming without really these publishers running live ops. Is that correct? That's right. So we do have, um, you know, like I mentioned, onward. Onward is a good example. We do have a number of successful sort of multiplayer games, um, and even some of the things that are not games, like we talked about, Supernatural, uh, essentially require live ops because they're running a service. Um, but most of the titles on the platform are not that. Most of the titles are sort of um, standalone experiences where you know we ship the binary to the user, the user downloads it and plays it, and that's it. The developer doesn't have a server, right? They don't they don't have to maintain any long going ongoing cost. So the profit and loss calculation is quite simple, right? If they make more than they spent on the development, then they're in the they're in the green. And um, and let's put it this way: I have a studio, and let's say I would start from the from the ground up now, and we're thinking about making a VR game. What is the type of a VR game we should make to succeed in the market? Now you're looking at your data, like how can we get into that 10 million, 10 million mark? Like what would be your suggestion? Well, you know, one thing that we've been right about is a customer's demand quality, right? Like the stuff that is done the best is the stuff that universally has really high, uh, high production quality. Specific genres that we've seen actually have been quite, um, quite diverse. You might have heard of Beat Saber. That's a, a music game where you sort of cut blocks in times with music. We, we acquired that studio uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, that title is extremely successful. And there are a couple of other music titles on the platform that are also um, that are also successful, including Pistol Whip. And, and I mentioned Supernatural. It's not a video game, but it, it plays very similarly, uh, as well as Autica um, and, and a couple of others. So like the music game genre has been fairly well established. Um, we've also seen, you know, a lot of success in like uh, zombie games and horror games in particular. Like uh, one of our top titles is called The Walking Dead Saints and Sinners. And it's a title with The Walking Dead license. Uh, and it, it, it plays very well. And it's just extremely satisfying to like, you know, stab a zombie in the eye with a screwdriver <laughs> in, in VR, right? Like it's, it's quite visceral. And also, you know, unlike... A regular video game you can't just like turn away you're immersed in the world and so if you're if that is a high tension uh sort of dramatic environment it works really well that, that game's been quite well the other things we've seen is like titles that take really unique advantage of things you can do in vr that 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 can't really do on other platforms uh, i'll mention super hot as one of the one of the other success stories super hot started out as a you know regular pc game and then it was one of the very early adaptations to VR um, and has continued to be successful across uh, multiple VR platforms and is very successful on, on, on Quest 2 as well. And the key design sort of conceit of Superhot is that time only moves when you move. So if you, if you hold yourself still, everything, time stops. Mm. And when you start to move again, time moves forward at the speed that you're moving. And the... What this allows you to do is feel like Neo in the Matrix. If somebody shoots at you, you can stop moving and the bullet will freeze in front of you and you can slowly move yourself out of the way and it will miss. Um, 
you know, and you can, you can sort of duck and jump. And the whole thing is about manipulating time by manipulating the way you move. And that's unbelievable. Like it's every, everybody should play it. Uh, but there's no game. I think I've seen it. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. It, the same conceit worked pretty well as a 2D game, but it's mind blowing in VR because it's your actual movement, not your thumbs on a stick. It's, it's your, you know, your head and your, your hand movement. I would say if you're inter interested in video games, you know, making something that is uh, high quality and immersive and uh, can, can create a, a very convincing world is our key ingredients to, um, to success. The other thing I say is we've, we've seen a, a large increase in the number of women on our platform, uh, particularly with the launch of Quest 2. It's been going up quite a bit since we launched Quest 1, but it's now actually accelerating uh, quite quickly. And I think that women on the platform are um, sort of underserved markets. There's a lot of opportunity to appeal to female gamers in VR that um, I think we could we could do better at, at. So, you know, women like women like all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, women like true crime. Women, women like horror. Women like uh, the fitness apps in particular. Uh, there's there's a lot of opportunity I think to build something that is. Um, in its target audience, a little bit more gender neutral. Yeah. Uh, in, in particular, we have seen a, an audience on the horizon looming for us. Like if you were going to start today, I would tell you that building a narrative heavy game is probably in your best interest. Um, and when I say narrative heavy, I mean, I, I don't really mean that you should take particular mechanics. Like I'm not saying build a walking simulator. I'm not saying build Zelda or Skyrim. But on any of those games would fit the category. Um, a game that relies heavily on narrative, has a deep and convincing narrative and lots of interesting characters, is something that we've seen a very large audience of people interested in VR. So if we, if we look at mobile, uh, hidden object games with heavy narrative are really popular with a female audience. Hidden mm -hmm. object game where you're investigating a crime scene in VR with a storyline sounds like a good idea. <laughs> yes. So... I think you probably want to skew like a little bit more complex than a hidden object yeah. style you would do on mobile. You would make it look more like, uh, you know, you could imagine a CSI title where you're yes. actually, you know, uh, going over the body and lifting the limbs and looking for the exactly. murder weapon or whatever. And actually, honestly, like, I'm not talking about just appealing to women, although I think that would appeal to women. That's an audience that there's like, everybody wants to play that game. We released a, a series of research documents about the target audience for VR uh, late last year. And if you are um, interested in, in sort of the VR as a business, you absolutely should go read it. It's a segmentation survey that we did over a number of years to find out like what people are interested in, uh, what they're likely to purchase in VR, what they think VR is for. Mm -hmm. And it identifies segments like, you know, we identify core gamers, we identify like sort of multiplayer focused gamers. Um, but it, with the segments, it comes with gender breakdowns and approximate United States segment size. And we've published all this publicly. The most interesting segment to me is called Story Seeker. Mm -hmm. And that is, first of all, it's the largest segment that we identify. It's bigger than core gamers. It's bigger than multiplayer folks. Um, and it has the best gender balance. It's about 50% women. Um, that audience will be here in the next year or two. They aren't the early adopter folks. They aren't the folks that show up when you know you ship the first the first device because they're excited about the technology. What they're really interested in is narrative experiences, um, and they want proof that the narrative experiences 
that they're looking for can be hosted by VR. We have a number of them today. Uh, there's more coming, but that is the audience that I would target if I were, you know, starting from the ground up with Blue Sky yeah. video game design. That's a, that's a, that's a good that's a good uh, good call out for the folks listening to this. So I wanted to like final point that I wanted to kind of discuss was AR and AR versus VR. Sure. Uh, and what is I mean you've been you've been in VR for seven years basically since since it started. So what is what is the future looking at for the uh, for the immersive technology? And and of course we know that Apple is working on their own devices. They rumored AR devices, rumored VR devices, and it seems like all the big technology um, technology companies are investing into this. So in short, AR, VR, what can you talk about the uh, the future of these these technologies and use cases? Well, yeah, I mean, I can only guess because like the products don't really exist yet. Like we have plenty of R&D internally, but like I, I don't have a crystal ball about, you know, the, the sort of shape that these devices will take. But, you know, I worked on the, the early... Android devices. I was there for the the first couple of I was at Google for the first uh, couple of years of of Android launching and market. And the thing that I learned is uh, I think that there's a uh, intrinsic value of sort of always available convenience that a phone, for example, gives you. And the use of that convenience value it was not clear at the beginning of the sort of modern cell phone era. Like we we did not, for example, uh, understand that your phone was going to be like used for gaming, for example, for, or, for, or for the types of games that have materialized on phones uh, in the early days of, of Android. So I'm a little bit hesitant to say like, oh, here's what you're going to use your VR or AR devices for. Um, I do think it is likely that AR devices share a lot of technology with VR, in particular in terms of head tracking and being able to produce stereoscopic images uh, at very low latency. I don't actually think the products are likely to overlap really dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that VR is about you know stepping into a virtual world, and I think AR is probably about bringing you know data into the real world. And I suspect that a lot of these products will uh, sort of hinge on that sort of always-on convenience factor. Um, but their actual use, like what you know. This is what your AR. This is what you're going to use your AR head your device for in 2027 or something. <laughs> is something that I suspect nobody really knows. We have to build the hardware. We have to get it out there and have a strong opinion about what we think it's for. But what's really going to happen is the developer community is going to show us what the users really want. So that's that's kind of where my head's at with AR. I think that the the products will be very different, even though the technology overlaps quite a bit. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, I I, I think I've, I've used Magic Lib a few years ago, so it, it was very different than the VR experience and. It's just, um, it's sort of a narrative that you can see that the people are talking about, you know, VR is this, and it has kind of, you know, this is the uh, the trend of the VR, and then AR is the next one, What whereas what you're talking about is they're going to coexist most likely, and the developers will find different use cases, and, and people will have different use cases for these different platforms. I think that's right. And I think, you know, when you want to play an immersive video game, seeing it, you know, being able to walk around with light glasses form factor on your face is maybe not the most important piece. But if you want to wear this thing for 12 hours a day and you want to have instant access to your email or something, mm -hmm. like I don't know what AR is being used for, but if you imagine that those are the use cases, then I then, hope not. You know, that sounds horrible. <laughs> that sounds I, like I mean, a like, nightmare. <laughs> those are the, those are some of the sort of like expectations that people seem yeah. to seem to have for what then then like the form factor for example and the weight those things are going to really matter and that's going to that's going to cause these devices even though the technology that underlies them overlaps a lot i think they're going to be parallel parallel products in the market at the same time and you might own both and use them for different things mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, that makes that makes total sense. Um, so, Chris, you, you've covered a lot. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've basically walked me through, through the whole history of Oculus. What kind of games are succeeding currently? What kind of games do you think will be succeeding in the future in the ecosystem? Um, a lot of different, a lot, a lot of knowledge on, on, on VR, but what would you like the listeners to sort of remember out of this? Like, what is the, what is the action point for a lot of, a lot of founders and a lot of executives listening to this? Um, I'd say we went through, VR went through, you know, a period of uh, exploration for what the proper product should be in an earlier cycle, 2016, 2017. What we have now is the fruits of that exploration, which is a real mass market capable product. Um, and we're selling it really quickly. So if you're at all interested in building for VR, now's the right time to do it because we actually have something that's not an experiment. Uh, it's not a tech demo. It's a real product with real users and more of them every day uh, where developers are making real money. So um, that, that, that's kind of my, <laughs> my core pitch. The, other, the last thing I would say is we talked a lot about video games today. There's a lot of video game work that's doing very well on the platform. It's certainly not limited to video games. We talked about fitness. There's mm -hmm. also a lot of investments in productivity software, uh, in all kinds of educational software, music software. The game developers that are likely listening to this podcast are uniquely positioned to produce software for VR because they have real-time 3D graphics experience, particularly on mobile chipsets. Like if you are a Unity or Unreal expert, you can build something for VR, even if it's not a video game. So. I would, I would love to encourage folks who are thinking about VR to expand their, their uh, sort of idea of what's possible, what, where they may be able to differentiate themselves as a business from other businesses because of their video game background, even if what they're building for VR isn't strictly a, what we would classically think of as a video game. Also, if you want to make a video game, that's cool too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. I'll add your LinkedIn um, description, the LinkedIn note in the descriptions below so that people can contact with you. Uh, and then, um, yeah, ask about what kind, of, what kind of games they're making and hopefully pitch some of their games for, for Oculus. Great. Love to hear from them. Thank you so much for having me on the show, taking the time to talk about this stuff today. <laughs> of course. Thank you, Chris, for, for joining. And thanks, everybody, for, for listening.